This episode of Insights is brought to you by MNP Digital, a firm that guides, protects, and empowers organizations along their digital journey. See how at mnpdigital.ca. Welcome to this week's Insights podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Don, we had an excellent conversation today with the Premier of New Brunswick, uh, Blaine Higgs. This is the second in our series of interviews with the Premiers in Atlantic Canada. Uh, and I think it was an incredibly um, eye-opening conversation. We had a, we talked about a lot of subjects, everything from municipal reform to healthcare to dealing with the pandemic. And he is a straight shooter. He's not a guy, he's not a traditional politician by any means. Yeah, and you know what? I think uh, we're, we're seeing a new breed uh, of uh, politician in this region. Uh, currently, uh, the four premiers that we have in this region are quite different, in my opinion, from past uh, past premiers. We had a great conversation with Denny King, who, you know, uh, again, a different style of politician, very open, very forthright, uh, you know, very uh, transparent. Uh, Blaine Higgs is of the same mold. You know, uh, he he gave us a lot of insight about how he is approaching government in a different way. You know, he's not he he's uh, he's he's interested in making sure that New Brunswick pays its way as it goes and it doesn't you know end up in a bad financial situation. The province clearly is in a much better financial situation, even coming out of the pandemic. And um, and, and he gave us a piece of information that I didn't realize. I was wondering how they were able to pull that off, but. Uh, he indicated that the province has got a lot more revenue from HST because New Brunswickers apparently have been spending like drunken sailors during the pandemic, and uh, there's been a lot more revenue coming in there. In fact, he said it went from 70 million right to almost 300 million, or, or I forget the, the number it was four times, I think. And so, you know, that's a nice windfall of revenue that uh, helps the financial situation of the province. And, and, you know, he is a conservative after all, and fiscally he's going to run things tight. But his business background is clearly made a big difference in how the province is being run. Yes, and I've I've been saying for a long time, I've written about this actually in my column over the years, that for whatever reason, we have a, a layer of senior managers in this province, in the private sector, a lot of very talented people that retire at 60 or 65, and I'm not specifically looking at you, Don, but, uh, uh, and they don't want to go into politics. And actually, uh, Premier Higgs had some thoughts on why not, but I'd like to see a, a higher share of politicians coming out of the private sector that actually have experience in running corporations, balancing the books, you know, managing payroll, I think that's an incredibly important skill. Yes, they have deputy ministers that have that experience, but if you're a politician and you understand, you know, how to balance the books, how to how to forecast, how to do, you know, manage payroll, I think that's a helpful skill. So it's good to see uh, him in that role doing because of that experience. Uh, but uh, I'd like to see more politicians um, also. Uh, you know, I mean. You retire at 60, you're going to live another 30 years if you take care of yourself. You know, mm. what are you going to do? Just play, uh, play, uh, I don't know, uh, shuffleboard and, and canasta the rest of your life? No, get involved in politics. Yeah. And, and you know, I remember I, when I first met uh, uh, Blaine, um, he, was, uh, he was the leader of the opposition, I believe. 
And um, I did a presentation uh, to him in this caucus. In fact, I, you know, I did that a lot. I, I, I presented basically to every caucus in Atlantic Canada for the last 30 years, I guess. And um, the one thing that stood, stood out from that first meeting with him, I think he said something, and these are not the right words, but he said, you know, uh, I'm not here for a career. I'm here to make a difference. And, and, and in our conversation with him, that's exactly the way he looks at things. He's not looking at, you know, what gives him the benefit to get reelected in four years time. He, he's trying to do what's right for New Brunswick today. And I think that that philosophy is something that I think we can all appreciate. Uh, I'm not a big fan of career uh, politicians. Um, I don't think they serve us well in the long term because their motivations are different than when they get involved in politics to begin with. They, they, almost everybody gets involved to make a difference and then they get comfortable in the role and they want to stay in that role and they start to make decisions that really are in their best interest, not the interest of the citizens. So we heard very uh, detailed uh, um, feedback from the premier on issues like municipal reform mm. and addressing social challenges, his vision for bilingualism in the province. He talked about the Atlantic investment bubble. So the uh, entrepreneurs listening today will want to hear that. So this is one you want to stay right to the end because there's very good content here on his vision for the province on a variety of fronts from healthcare to education. Yeah, just one one comment that I want to make that, you know, uh, Higgs has been criticized as, you know, not being fully bilingual personally and, uh, you know, not and not really being uh, in favor of bilingualism. It's quite the contrary. He recognizes that it's a made, made uh, you know, asset uh, for the province, a main differentiator. It, it creates a lot of jobs. And uh, I like his solution to the problem, which is starting in the school system. Uh, you know, to, he indicated that 65% of students coming out of the Anglophone stream are not bilingual. Well, that's not good enough. You know, we need, we need to do better. And in fact, this is something that we should do in Canada, generally speaking, anyway. But the fact that he's focused on the root cause of the problem, I think, shows the long-term thinking that he's bringing uh, to the table. That's right. And in the 2016 census, it was the first census in history, since we uh, instituted bilingualism back in the 60s, it was the first census where the share of Anglophones that said they were bilingual went down over the previous census. So how is that, you know, uh, uh, any kind of vision for bilingualism in this province? Yes, we have to protect our French language community, our Acadian community, and, and that's a fundamental uh, objective of the government. But if you don't have English people and um, immigrants speaking French, uh, it's really not going to be good for the province. So I, that's absolutely right. You start in the schools, you do a much better job of 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 of, of uh, promoting French language in the schools, and that will help over time create a higher level of bilingualism in the province. And that'll be good for social harmony. It'll be good for uh, economic outcomes, as you said. So there's there's no there's nothing to be lost uh, by doing that. Yeah. So uh, we have a long conversation with the premier. He gives us a lot of detail. Uh, he's obviously well prepared for our conversation, but I think people will get a lot out of this conversation. So uh, let's have a listen to our conversation with the premier of New Brunswick. Welcome to our podcast, premier. Thank you. Nice to be here. We'd like to begin by uh, finding out a little bit about your career before entering the world of politics. Can you give us a bit of a summary of how you ended up in the premier's chair? Well, um, you know, I think that mystifies a lot of people, actually. Um, 
I, um, I, uh, my, my background's in engineering, and, and I graduated from UNB back in 77. Went to um, the refinery for three years, and I ended up staying there for 33, and retired uh, after a lengthy career in various roles. Um, went into senior management roles in the mid, mid part of my career to the, to the end. Uh, traveled a lot for the company and, you know, negotiated a lot of deals working with different companies and mainly involved in supply and transportation issues, as you, as you might guess. The thirst to get involved in something different was, was back uh, when I was getting ready to retire from the refinery that I, I would like to uh, try politics because I felt there must be a reason we could make a way we could make better decisions in politics. And um, I mean, I've, I realized how difficult that is. But mind you, I've also realized one of the kind of the root causes of, uh, of, of why our, our province, particularly on elections that happen every four years, uh, goes into this death spiral. Um, the, um, you know, one of the things I did right from the start of after winning the leadership uh, was looking at how, what kind of a platform do, do we put together. And, and I remember the very first election, um, you know, our platform amounted to about a hundred million of spending. And, um, and my opponent at the time, Premier Glantz's platform was 1.6 billion of spending. Uh, being from finance before that, I realized that every time there's an election, all of the new spending, and, and usually it gets shoved into the year of the, of the election as much as possible in order to hide it and make the previous government look as bad as possible because they'll blame it on them, it was, it was their budget. And that is tradition after tradition after tradition. So I said, well, I'm not going to do that. And, uh, you know, if I, I'm not going to have my hands tied behind my back when we get elected. And um, so we will or we won't get elected. And, and I think, Don, at the time, you know, your projections of me getting elected were nil to zero. And, um, and it was a stretch. I mean, believe me, it was a hiatus, uh, as we know, and, and got a stalemate there for five, four or five weeks. But we didn't have any baggage in relation to prov uh, promises. And there were a number of dishes on the table that obviously I could deal with quickly, which we did. But it meant we could balance our very first budget. And there's absolutely no way you could balance the first budget with 1.6 billion of new spending. But we could because we didn't have that. And so we carried on from that very point that one of our fundamentals is going to be we're going to build within our means as we, as we uh, develop and, and grow our, our capabilities. The other aspect for me was and what I did my whole life is working with others to, to create capabilities or to build, build capabilities and build an organization. And we had, you know, 55,000 or we have 55,000 employees plus in our, in, our, um, in our system that are basically waiting for the, all of the political promises that are made in, to just implement them. It's not something they've developed as, well, this is the next best thing for New Brunswick or how do we move forward? It's just what was ever created on the campaign trail to buy a vote. I mean, I've talked like this ever since I got elected, and it was it was what I believed in and saw in finance days, and it's what I put in reality when I got elected. And so we built this concept that got even more reinforced during during COVID, because COVID was something obviously nobody planned on. And so just when we were doing great guns uh, with with the platform commitments we made, but with our budget controls and, and capital expenditures, and COVID hit. And, and so that was in our, our second budget. And, um, and then I remember it passed in seven days, but it really wasn't, wasn't of any real value because it, everything was, was different. But what COVID did do 
was create a whole, uh, just as we saw it nationally with premiers and, and of any side of the fence being, um, uh, you know, working together, we saw that in government. We had the concept here of one GNB, and, and it was basically bullying people from any department in order to deal with issues and, and basically uh, say, you know, we need people on the line, like on the borders. We need people doing tests. We need people doing contact tracing. Uh, they were brought from anywhere to build teams and to get the job done. And the focus was, was all about how do we keep people as safe as possible. And, and I guess the other aspect of that, again, when I say how well a province can do with political alignment, is we had the COVID, uh, the COVID cabinet. And we really did talk as one. And I, and I say it, you know, uh, I'll, I'll give kudos to, to Kevin Vickers during that time. Um, because I can understand that politically it, it maybe wasn't the best move for him, but he certainly did it with the conviction of what's the right thing to do for the province. And, and I would say that having him there at a time such as that was a tremendous help because I can't, um, I can't imagine somebody else with any sort of history in politics would have, would have uh, worked so well for the best interests of the province, not, not being influenced by the politics of it all. Premier, I, this is a little off topic, but I it, I wanted to ask you that it seems very rare for senior executives like yourself to go into politics in New Brunswick. If you look at all of our premiers going back at least as far, far back as Robichaux, none of the premiers actually had any sort of executive or management experience before they came into politics. And I always wondered why that was. Do you have any thoughts on why more uh, folks that have had long executive careers in industry don't get involved in politics in New Brunswick? Is there, is it just, do you have any thoughts on why that would be? Yeah, I, I do actually. Any that, that know how government works and how the political processes, uh, process essentially abuses the system, don't want any part of it. And there are, there are obviously businesses that I would say benefit from, from interaction with government. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been involved, I could go through a number of situations where because of my business background, I've been able to look at somebody right in the eye and say, you know, your proposal makes zero sense. And, um, you know, I, I would highlight, I'll, I'll pick on this one because it's a very public one. And, and it, it had to do with the, uh, the Buck Haircut shipyard. And, and when I went in to visit the shipyard here, I found a company from Quebec, Ocean. they're building a barge uh, ferry force, but they're also building this other big, big structure. And I recognize it because I was in the marine industry. Uh, it was a floating dock, floating uh, dry dock. And I said, so what is that? Uh, what, what are you doing with that? And I knew what it was. I asked them, they said, well, we're going to use it to repair vessels. And I said, oh, you're going to add the capability offshore right here and, and, and grow this business. They said, no, no, we're going to use it at our dry docks in Quebec. And it's a project we're doing for the province of New Brunswick. I said, well, why would you be doing it for the province of New Brunswick? What's New Brunswick got to do with it? Well, they wanted to create some jobs, so they just we told them we could build a dry dock and, and lease it back. And, and, um, and so, so here we were creating a project that had no real value for the province at all just to create employment. And, and then they wanted us to go ahead and, and build them a, a, a launching pad to get the thing in the water. And I said, no, we're not doing that. So, uh, but they said, well, we won't take order, order of it. And I said, fine. Don't take order of it because we'll, I'll own it as a province because I knew what they're worth. And I knew if there was anything that, that they would have done uh, on budget, it would have been that because they're releasing it for, for a 25-year payout. So I said, I'll take it. No problem. I can, I'll, I'll just own it. 
Well, then they said, no, no, we're not doing that. Of course I knew they wouldn't do that. So they launched themselves, and, and they took it away. It's actually in service using it down in St. John, I think, at the West Side Pier. They're, hmm. uh, they, they, they're employing it there. But So what did we do with that facility? We sold it to MQM, a private company that now has like 25 people working and expanding their workforce. Oh, the other piece on Grupo Xian, I asked them, I said, what's your order book look like? Because they'd been there for three, four, five years. Not a single item on their order book. And they said, well, uh, do you have anything else you want us to build? I said, absolutely not. We had spent every single dime on the projects to bring it in, pay all fit, to do everything, just to create employment. Now MQM are doing it as a private company with no government involvement. And so that's been the focus all along. But there is this desire politically to go around and create a job in an area that has no long-term sustainability as long as the taxpayer uh, funds it. Um, I could use a similar example with the shipping and bridge. I mean, Robert Govan primarily left because I wouldn't build a new bridge. I said, Robert, you will always have a bridge to, to uh, Lemek Miscou. There will never be a time you without a bridge. But we had spent a lot of money on the foundations and the cables and the pulleys, and it was working just fine. And I said, in the engineering, we're doing a full engineering analysis, and when it's, when it's completed, we will, we'll, uh, it'll say when we need to replace it, and we'll replace it. No problem. He said, that's not good enough. I want a new bridge. And, and, and so, well, why? I just want a new bridge. So, you see, I don't think that way as a business person or as an engineer. I think about it when it's needed. And now we're focused on our asset management and how we grow that. So why people don't get involved? Because they cannot tolerate the abuse of dollars in such a massive fashion. And they just say, you know, I run a business all my life. I've worked with great people. And there's great people in the province, in New Brunswick, working for the system. Um, you know, as, as good or better people than I ever worked with in my career elsewhere. And, and they just need a chance to be as good as they can be. And they showed that during COVID. Well, I'd like to see more, um, more folks like yourself get involved in politics that have experience in management. I'm trying to get Don Mills to actually run for politics, but he's also not particularly interested. So. <laughs> Why don't you want to get involved, Don? Uh, Blaine, I could never be elected. <laughs> oh, well, that is a whole new challenge by itself. More, so many people said I'd never get elected because because I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't promise enough. I mean, that kind of theory got dispelled. But more more so, I'd never get elected as leader because none of my colleagues supported me. And um, but the people did because the people want to see a change. I won't say well, none. I did three three of my colleagues supported me. That was not fair. Uh, just as an aside, I've always believed, and I might be, and I think you might be proof of this, is that um, citizens just want the straight goods. They don't want all the baloney that happens in politics. They just want the you know, the goods, the straight goods, and uh, and that you know they're waiting for for kind of a refreshing take on how to manage provinces. I think, and you know we tried every other way, and it hasn't worked. So you know I think that we're in that. Uh, time where especially with uh, you know the pandemic and everything else you know every everything's under a lot of scrutiny right and it uh is. and uh, uh you know we had a really refreshing uh, conversation with uh, uh danny king like he's the same he's kind of the same way and, and, and like he's straightforward you know there's no what you see is what you get and and he and he just talks to people uh in a plain in plain language that they understand 
you know, and I think that that kind of that style of leadership is now in style. Well, that's good to hear. And I, I just hope there will be more of it. People come forward because we need that. And I guess if you think of how democracy uh, flourished many years ago, it wasn't a profession to itself. It was it right. was people that that came in at a time when they had a lot of experience to offer to help. And, and they were doing it for all the right reasons. Well, now it's turned into a profession of its own. Yeah, that's right. So I, I just wanted to ask you quickly, Premier, when you uh, set up initially when you were when you were elected Premier, it was a minority government. And based on everything we just talked about, was it was it challenging to uh, what were the challenges you faced when you were when you were trying to form a minority government in the province? It's not very common here. Yes, that was a unique uh, the, with the pandemic and then the minority government, the first in 100 years, I guess. Well, it, it, yeah, it was challenging. It was challenging to get a final decision. That, that was five weeks of, of uh, interest. Um, but then it was challenging to, to beat back the negativity that, that uh, surrounded the campaign. Um, you know, particularly uh, what we saw from organizations. I mean, particularly, you know, I, I guess three days before the campaign, the one I will single out notably, Three days before the campaign, um, me and Lacadine Naval went on a, a rant against me that, that would have just, you know, say, how, how could a public paper do that? Uh, because there was no foundation for it. And, and it was a question that prompted it was the one I had in Emerson and said, if, if you form minority government, will you, uh, will you work with the NDP, the Greens, or the, or the Liberals? And I said... Um, I will work with anyone who has the best interests of this province. And of course, what they took from that was um, I had immediately planned and, and negotiated an alliance um, with, uh, with the People's Alliance or with someone else. And, and I hadn't, I, I just made that statement. But boy, that went wild. QP, um, you know, the negative signs I had, the black signs, there were a lot of those. So, so it was, was, who is this guy? You know, and everyone kind of had a, a pre- Opinion, and then of course the connection with Irving. They felt like, oh well, here I am. I'm an Irving employee. Um, I learned a lot from Irving, and I've used a lot of what I've learned over this this tenure, and still do. And I make no apologies for it because there are there are situations I get in that, boy, I mean, it, you can look right through it and say, I've been here before. I, I've seen this. This makes no sense. But but uh, so we had to get through that, and uh, and then of course you know you could argue whether the the pandemic was a blessing or a curse. And, and of course it was a curse in our health and, and worldwide as a pandemic would be. But as a blessing, it was like all of a sudden, we're now focused on one issue. And we're doing it for a common cause where everyone's united and we're driving, driving it. And we're working with people uh, throughout the province, communities, uh, organizations, the, the um, health, health uh, public health. Uh, and we're doing it in the, in the, in the, with a common interest, but we're doing it to say how can we minimize impact on the economy to keep things moving as much as possible without shutting down. Then we get into regional approaches. And, and, and of course, when, we, when we, things were doing really well for us in the, last, um, in the summer of uh, 2020, um, when we had no cases of any kind, we had no hospitals, nothing. And so it looked good. And, and at that time, the recommendation of public health was, well, we, we need a 75% immunity. And then they actually came in and said, no, actually 70 will work. Uh, but um, we left it at 75 because that was, that was the target we were setting. But it is the reason we said, well, are we able to open up early? Because you're saying 70 will work and people will continue to get vaccinated. So yes, we can. And yes, we could. And that was the proposal and the agreement. 
Um, but people that didn't get vaccinated at the same rate and 70 wasn't good enough. We learned later, of course, now we're at 90 and saying that's where we need to be with boosters. So we have learned throughout all this. So that kept us focused. But all the while, we've stayed focused on our priorities. And, um, you know, I'm pretty pleased to say that we are we are um, in the 80, 90 percent complete priorities. And this next budget will, will probably put us over the top. Uh, well, Premier, no doubt it's been challenging. Uh, it's always challenging to be in government, but to be in government during a pandemic is, you know, double your pleasure, I guess. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, you've done a lot of things nonetheless, uh, things like, uh, you know, uh, municipal reform and a bunch of other things that are important to the province. Uh, like most of Atlantic Canada, New Brunswick has consistently trailed the country in economic growth for decades. You know, I've railed about this. You probably heard me on this topic. But one of the reasons uh, has been really very slow growing populations uh, that has been rapidly aging at the same time. The most recent census shows that uh, New Brunswick grew its population 3.5% between 2016 and, and 2021. Uh, this is the fastest growth rate in the province for decades. In fact, the, the previous the previous uh, census period, I think, actually saw, saw a slight decline in the population for New Brunswick. It did. Run, correct. So, you know, that that has been turned around. The challenge for New Brunswick is that most of the growth has been really limited to the southern part of the of the province. Is there an opportunity to see more population growth in northern and rural New Brunswick? And what is the role of government to support that? So I guess just to confirm, yeah, and in terms of our current um, rate of growth, we, we're almost at, uh, we're over 797,000 now. So our, our, our rate of growth is is a highest level in 45 years and about 30,000 people in the 2021 census that 3.8% or nearly 30,000 people uh, have joined come to New Brunswick and we've seen it all over the province. I mean, we've seen it even in the, in the rural areas um, we've seen an increase in interest from like 15% has gone up to 25%. And, and um, so although the bulk of it, as you say, is in, in urban centers, we're also seeing that rural areas are, are um, seeing that growth as well. On the francophone side, we've raised our, our immigration policy so that we, we we're at 27% now, so that's up. I think it was 24, 23, um, and we're targeting for 34. And, and we've tied together ONB and immigration so that when we're bringing mm -hmm. companies in, we want them to focus on uh, bringing new people, but that, and then, then we focus on the immigration to bring new people. So it's not just swapping the deck chairs. And, and having the same people just move from one company to another. Although obviously more opportunities give people flexibility to do some of that. Uh, in, in the Northern part of the province, and I had, I had some, some notes here in relation to some of the projects. Um, I, we've got about four or five of them that are, it's on 13, I think, isn't that right there? Yeah, uh, what we've typically done also, you know, I, I mentioned the, the one for because that has been the history. We've created employment with, with taxpayer money. And in many cases, it could have been, well, we build a new road just to create employment. Um, and our asset management has got, out of, got down. We're, we're really picking up now and getting caught up. And, and I say caught up loosely because we've got a ways to go. But on, on our roads throughout our province that are falling behind in their routine maintenance and infrastructure spending, um, but in CareCut, Uni Financial, I mean, that's a big announcement just recently. And, and so that's, that's going to be a, about 100 new people um, in the area. Um, I think what we're seeing with ONB is that we use a, 
a job rebate program as opposed to a grant program. And, and, and we're, in fact, we've given very little of any grants, um, but we focused on uh, you bring people in, you bring the jobs in under this criteria, then we'll do the rebate. And, and we're seeing WageX is another, OnFlow is another um, that are, are seeing activity. The pellet industry in Beldoon is something that uh, we see growth there, shipments through Bel the port. Travali have a new method right now on, on uh, ore extraction, which I think is looking like that mine may have uh, some added life of another 15 or 20 years. And I don't know all the details around that. Um, we did an airport study. And I know that talked about the, the harmony between the, the southern airports, but it also about how do we get a centralized uh, transportation system in the north so that so that we have good good coverage and that we can we can maintain a, a, a system. And I never forgot years ago in finance one one meeting when someone said to me, you know, we just need to figure out where our center is so that we can have the amenities that others have. And yes, we may have to drive a little farther because of the population, but at least we have it. The municipal form is going to help us do that because we're targeted on not competing with each little municipality, but having a region of support. And that's the biggest win from all that. A hub of economic activity, which is a big win uh, with all of that. And, and I think that's how we, uh, we start to build capability. So, and it's a challenging, politically it's a challenging. For me, I'm trying to, to say, can we identify levels of service in each of our regions and then we say, oh, that one fits a new rink or that fits a, a new fire hall or that fits a, um, you know, a new health center, whatever, um, or schools, because it, it is not to the same standard as others. And then what that ultimately does is say to people, OK, I've got the services. I can live anywhere. And then what's the missing link? Broadband and Internet services. And we're seeing companies like uh, like TD uh, as one, but many, many companies are looking at. I can work anywhere. I just need to have good access to, to uh, internet. So we are working with companies. There's currently about five or six that are in the hunt, looking for uh, and applying for the federal funding, and and we're basically laying out the map of New Brunswick and saying, okay, where are they going to cover, and then where do we have shortfall, and and the shortfall ones could be filled up with with outfits like Starlink, um, who provide a, a hundred megabyte service. And uh, maybe some need 5G, but not everybody needs 5G. So, so that's for. So we've gone through the barrier list and said, where, where's the bar Where are the barriers? And, and that's one. Health, health services, obviously one. The education services. We have some major, major plans that will come forward in the next two weeks on our education system. And, and I, I guess you've heard me say many times, and I know it's here as a question, so I could just kind of zero into it, but. Our bilingual province and the benefit that can bring to New Brunswick, and and we can actually be uh, have a have a when you look at SWOT analysis and you say what is the strength of New Brunswick, it can be that we are bilingual. But you know that strength needs to apply to all New Brunswickers, and we've been 50 years trying to get that formula right in our education system, and we have not gotten it right. And we have an English system that is streaming. We have an English system that doesn't do well. 65% of our students don't even pretend to come out bilingual. And uh, it's going to be a lot of discussion. You might have read the, the commissioner's report on language training. Hit it bang on on our challenges. And, you know, politicians have been afraid to deal with it. We're going to need help to do what's right. And we're going to need people looking at it and say, you know, yeah, it may be a tough decision, but it, it's time. So probably the biggest challenge I have with, with internally is, 
you mentioned about why people get into this after a lengthy career or why don't more people get into it is because our focus is not the next election. It's let's just get this done. And I, I have an inherent belief that you do what's necessary. You either, you know, people recognize it and, and you're, you're, you're rewarded for it. Or at the end of the day, you say, well, no, maybe not, but it was still the right thing to do. So, so let's, let's just get on with it. And I think we're demonstrating that municipal reform is one. The health plan we've got, there's still more there to be done because one of the things we learned in the pandemic was that when Vitality and Horizon work together, we do great things. But when they separate and go over here as two completely independent health systems, then we're not as good as we can be. So we pulled together during the pandemic. And then when we had the reprieve in the summer um, of 220, um, the, uh, the true back apart they went. And, and then we come back together again in the fall. And so now we're working together to figure out, okay, how do we manage a healthcare system with two of Italian Horizon, but how do we complement each other in the services we provide? So if you're in big and hip knee surgery, great. I don't need to do that. You do this in this hospital. And, and I don't really care where it is either. It, and the hip and knee, we, we did that in the St. John and St. Joe's. But it's that sort of philosophy. And then having a kind of an overarching view of health, our health system in New Brunswick. And, and we're all part of it. So we're going to come back and ask you about healthcare, but I think that's a really, really good point. We're too small of a province to have those two systems operating completely in silos. So that's really good. I did want to come back to immigration. I know you've been a big fan. You've talked publicly about the importance of immigration. Uh, can you, and I think even uh, in your state of the province, I think you might even have mentioned the population getting up to a million or, or so, so you can maybe confirm that or not. But what is your strategy as a government to attract more immigration uh, to the province? And do you have targets uh, for immigration? Yes, we did. We had targets for... Um, 7,500 a year, and, um, and, and, and our goal was, um, and we wanted retention, you know, that we would uh, be able to keep 85%. And, and currently we're kind of within our targets because the last few years have been, have been very, very good. Um, retention is in the order, I think it's more of 50 to 60%. But still, you know, it, it's, it's good, and we, we have lots of, of, of jobs. We have like the 120,000 vacancies over the next 10 years. We have about 15,000 jobs right now. We raise minimum wage to get into a, a bracket. We're looking right now at how do we, how do we help those uh, with affordable housing that have been affected by, by the high costs of, of accommodations. And, and we know how that happened. I mean, with all of a sudden an, uh, an interest in real estate in the province, people buying apartment buildings that had loan, long paid off, all of a sudden now have a mortgage that they're trying to get the rent out of and rentals that would have been low, but it didn't matter because there wasn't a capital cost associated with it. And now there is. So you can understand how we got here with this sudden boom in, in real estate, but it's how do we how do we bridge the gap so people can manage through that? And we're looking at aspects of the tax system. Uh, you know, you've long heard about the double tax, so we're looking at aspects of, of all that and how we can get back on track because we were on track for that in the budget just prior to the pandemic. Yeah, that one's a big number, but it has it does keep coming up. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how we retain more immigrants? How do we get that number up to 85%? Do you have thoughts? Is your government working on retention? Well, we're yes, we are working on retention. Um, 
So, and our, our target is that having that 85% number, but what we're seeing is the communities. We're seeing that bringing in people is bringing in a community. So you're bringing in like-minded individuals, but you're bringing in families. And we're seeing that particularly effective with some companies like Cooks, um, um, the uh, Group Savoir, um, and, um, and also Irving, JDI, and Chipman. We're seeing that when they bring in families, they create a community, people stay. And so that's been our focus of so the immigration policy is, is let's get people connected when, from where they come from to where they're going and where they live. And also providing housing. So when they move into a community, they actually have a housing plan that they can afford. And so they can celebrate in. We're finding a shift. It's kind of interesting, the shift in cultures. I mean, you could take a place, a place like Chipman, you know, in, in rural New Brunswick, it might not be real easy to kind of get, to get into. But we're finding now people recognizing, well, in that case, there's a big mill there that, that needs to employees and it doesn't have enough employees. And if they're going to have a community, they need to have people to work in. And that thing, same thing, you know, applies uh, up in St. Cotan in, in the areas that just need more people. So so I that seems to be the strategy that works. Students, in, students alone in our program, we're finding about 50% um, of students as well are staying. I would say this, so on the whole philosophy, is that, and this is something that I, I, I my, my kids call me an odd duck, um, I guess, because there's different things that motivate people. And, and, and when someone says I can't do something, that usually gets me all cranked up. That, 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 okay, well, let's figure this out. And, and in the case of uh, the Globe and Mail article several years ago, where they, they made a comment uh, about whatever New Brunswick's doing, do the opposite. And, you know, I don't care much for people outside of our province that are distant our province. And, and I'm thinking, you know, we, we, we need to have a better image. We need, we need people that are seeing us maybe for the first time and liking it. We had an article in the Financial Post a few months ago, um, SA Financial Post, or, or uh, maybe it was a little mail game, but it was a national paper. And it was um, suddenly the have-not province has it all. So, so what changed that dynamic? Um, was it COVID and, and all of a sudden they, they see what we're doing in COVID and, and, and how well for the most part that's worked. Was it our tourism strategy? Because now we're marketing in a new way. You know, we used to say, well, why can't we market like Newfoundland? Uh, they have great uh, tourism ads and, you know, and PEI. And so, so we are, and we're finding people are, are really starting to adhere to that. The, um, we've had people even say they moved here because they saw a tourism ad and then started to look into New Brunswick. And said, "Wow, I think I, I would like to live there." And they actually moved. We've we've had uh, situations where the rebate on the tourism that was a big win. That got our own people talking about New Brunswick because we we did it to ourselves for a long while. We would talk about, um, "Oh well, we're we're they're coming to Maritimes. Oh well, you can go to Cabot Trail or you can go down to um, PEI and and and, um, and and so." But I think now people are saying, "Well, no, no, you can you can go to the Fundy Trail or you can go up the." The southeast coast and it's all gorgeous country and and they're starting because they got around and saw it themselves so our big and biggest ambassadors got to be people that don't encourage people to go elsewhere encourage people to come to new brunswick and I, and I think we're building a larger pool of ambassadors yeah i would just say before don jumps in i would say that i i have seen an increase in self-confidence premier and i think that's absolutely right if we're not big believers in our own province it's gonna be pretty hard to retain folks coming from outside the province. So I think that's a really good point. 
We have a we have a ton of questions here, <laughs> and uh, the the next one is really related to population growth in in terms of addressing labor shortages as a result of aging populations, which is everywhere in Atlantic Canada, as you know. Uh, does your government have a target of how many people you will need to add to the workforce over the next decade or so? Yes, we do. Um, so the, the number of openings due to people retiring and leaving, it's about 120,000. But there are three main sectors that we're focused on in, in terms of healthcare, um, social assistance. We're going to about 22,000 openings. Uh, retail and wholesale trade, about 19,000. Um, and the manufacturing, about 9,000. And that would have been, and I would say we could we could almost um, add to that the trades industry, which has which has ballooned in the last year uh, of construction requirements and now housing requirements. So there's a kind of a new dimension added there of, of trades jobs. The top three locations we have um, would be re in retail, uh, nursing, and that's been a challenge. If you've seen and drivers, uh, transport drivers, which has been an ongoing issue. On the nursing side, we've tried to develop a, what we call a it was a kind of a mutual or a, yeah, a kind of a, a memo of understanding agreement or health court with, uh, with our Atlantic neighbors. And, and I'm not saying it, you know, it's hundred percent, but, but the idea was that we wouldn't pilferage from each other. We basically would set salaries. If you look at the contracts that we recently negotiated, we've made a point to get our nursing levels at equal or greater than Nova Scotia's and PEI's and Newfoundland. So we're, we're competing equally equitably in the, in the um, maritime provinces. We know that we we can't compete with Quebec and Ontario, but we shouldn't be eating our own lunch in Atlantic Canada. And if the stronger we are as a region, the better. And and I think that that goes to a number of issues. And I um, I didn't um, I didn't recall because I didn't have time to look at when you asked about the question about the the taxation strategy for uh, an investment strategy for Atlantic Canada. But I was hand to note here, and, and we did have a discussion about harmonizing that. In, in the within Atlantic region, so so we are that is in, in debate. We haven't had a lot of discussion on it, but we are in general agreement. It was an element of our cap call of probably a month or so ago. So I, I do expect that will that will continue to move forward. And our voices as a, an Atlantic region. I mean, we tried to stay harmonized for the most part during COVID, um, but I think that that there are there's more to be done there in relation to how we speak as as one in Atlantic Canada. And uh, and we get get on well with uh, with all the colleagues. Really, um, the, the four of us get along very well. So there's good relations now between the four uh, four premiers. Do you mean now? Or are you suggesting that there wasn't before? I just had to catch that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, in, premier, in my experience, this does in large part come down to personal relationships. If if, yeah. if the premiers you know, don't really like each other, it's very hard. To get things done, so it's it. Uh, you're saying things are pretty good right now between the, the four. Experience, the relations are very good, and I mean, I I could send Tim or Andrew or Dennis a, a text, and I'd have a response in five minutes, and it'd be the same with me to them. And during the pandemic, because of Andrew's medical background, it was great to call and talk to him about some of the things that were coming forward and what did he he uh, feel was the right move. So um, we we build and move off each other's strengths and weaknesses, and it's. Uh, yeah, I would say that the relationship is very good. So, Don, maybe we should move on to healthcare so we can get uh, get some yeah, of these no. questions done. <clears throat> yeah, obviously the pandemic has underscored some of the problems in our healthcare system, not just regionally but across the country, especially in terms of capacity, access to primary care, and wait times. 
Many hospitals in New Brunswick have struggled before the pandemic in terms of providing emergency services, for an example. Not long ago, your government rolled out a new strategy called Stabilizing Healthcare, an urgent call to action. What are the big ideas in that plan that will help address some of these challenges, Premier? Well, the idea is access to access and finding many multiple ways to do that. So what we learned in the pandemic is that that quick access through virtual care was was a requirement. I mean, it, it just it was a, it was the only way. But we found how effective it was for the first line of defense. Um, we also recognize that in the new process, doctors. Uh, and I mean, I have a doctor in my family, a young doctor, and 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 um, but they they certainly aren't going to work the hours that the the older docs did. And they like to work in a group setting, in a, in a clinical setting, a health center setting. So, so our focus in this is, okay, you may not have the same doctor, but you'll get an appointment within a very short order of time. And they will have access to all your records. So, so you can really move forward on that. The other aspect we've talked about for a long time has been how much can nurse practitioners do? And in terms of renewing, no, sorry, not, well, that's part of it. Nurse practitioners is part of the the, um, the assessment of a, of a situation before it refers to a family doctor. Um, how much of pharmacists? On, so we've changed the program around renewables and um, prescriptions and, and doing more from the actual uh, pharmacy side. And then the other aspect of it is in terms of what can a paramedic do? Because many of these paramedics are very well trained, especially the advanced care paramedics, that they can do an assessment right in the, at home. Say, look, you don't need to go to an ER. This is what you need. You could go to more of this, you can go to that, or here's, here's the case. So we're allowing them more capability to make assessments uh, on the spot. And, and I think that then, then what comes off to that is how do we manage all of that? If I was to say, and, and this is what I, I keep coming back to, is that although we're all asking for more money from the federal government because the ratios are, are off, and we are an aging population in New Brunswick, more so than other provinces. Newfoundland and ourselves would be, I think Newfoundland's the highest per capita and we're second and Nova Scotia's right there. So we're not too far off. Um, but the healthcare system, no matter how much money you throw at it, will not withstand um, the capabilities or the services required unless it's managed better. Unless we really get under the hood of what is happening, how things are being addressed, and, and what needs to be uh, what needs to be changed, and and so when when the federal government talk about, I want to know where the money's spent. If I'm going to increase health transfers, I want to know where the money's spent. And I know many of my colleagues, but not everyone, but many will say, oh well, no, no, it's provincial jurisdiction. I I, I don't want to. I uh, just give us money. You know, I think the public after the pandemic that have seen how weak our healthcare system is. Not that it wasn't weak before, but it wasn't as well established to be weak as it is now, are going to demand results for the money spent. Now, that's right up my alley, of course, because that's what I like, and I, I like to see that. So I, I'm saying, okay, let's agree. And we've said this, had those talks with my colleagues across the country. Let's agree on how we want to raise the bar. And I have, I have a couple kind of different reasons for wanting to do that. One is I believe we should be able to demonstrate value for what we what tax dollars are being spent. The other is I'm concerned that the standards in New Brunswick won't be able to keep up with some of the richer provinces. And we as a society in New Brunswick will, will pay a price for that. So if we determine the criteria, and, and I'm not, it wouldn't be everywhere, but on 
whether it's primary care, whether it's high level sur critical surgeries, what's our time, our wait times on a few things. It allows us to, in a meaningful way, determine that we too have a health care plan that equals others in this country. Premier, I need to ask you about municipal reform. Of course, the proposal that you've put forward and you're working on now as a government is, is the most ambitious reform since the 1960s. Uh, so congratulations on that. We'd like to hear where you're at with that. But we also wanted to ask you if there was any talk or thought of even doing more consolidation, um, you know, even in the urban centers, looking at uh, uh, more consolidation, or was that just more political pain than it, than it would be worth? Lots of talk and lots of thought. And, and uh, I would say this. Um, and, Don, I remember us talking about the, uh, um, the regional hubs and the centers of excellence and the kind of the energy or the uh, economic centers. And, and this, this is bleeding down that trail as to how do, we, how do we develop those and not compete but have that region be the, that driver. Um, yeah, and I will use a couple examples of, of either or of that discussion. When I look at Moncton, Riverview, and, and, um, and Dieppe, on all appearances from the outside, they seem to work really well together. I don't think I've ever had a meeting where all three of the mayors are part of it together, and they discuss the region as one. Now, maybe they fight like cats and dogs behind closed doors, but, but I don't see any evidence of that. Now, on the contrary, in St. John, I see lots of evidence of that. <laughs> and, and, but, I, but I also know that for the first time in, ever, we have envisioned St. John, an economic regional development model that has, that has board members comprising of all of the regions in St. John and around St. John, which is the first time ever. So our municipal reform, when you read through and you look at social aspects of, of uh, I, I just do not believe, and I have great difficulty, when, when someone says to me, well, I live in Quispam, Sousa, Rossi, uh, you know, that, that's St. John's problem. I worked my entire life in the city of St. John, as just about 80 or 90% of the people that live in the valleys do. And the poverty levels in St. John have been notorious in a south end and are still known as one of the poorest areas in the country. It is a joint responsibility, a regional responsibility that we all need to take ownership. So the municipal reform, and you read through, there's areas in four or five areas that talk about, one in particular is on the social contract, the social responsibility. Well, I'll tell you what that is about. That's about, in meaningful financial terms, the outlying valleys participating in a tax model that goes towards fixing the problem in poverty in the region. And we know where the center is, but we all could have it in the region as other areas. But we take a joint ownership, joint accountability, and, and, and have a, a group that represents the entire region. And we start doing that in different things. And I am, I'm obsessed with that because I am tired of, of the city that has great potential, especially with what CP is doing. We have huge potential for growth and we cannot lose it by thinking that if I live 20 minutes outside the city, it's not my problem. I, I just want to, uh just to add a, a point that uh, I remember a couple of, couple of years ago now already, um, I did a presentation to you in the caucus about the regional hub strategy, which seemed to be well received, by the way. I was quite surprised. Uh, and <laughs> one of the things that I <clears throat> noted is that there are seven kind of what I call regional hubs in the province that uh, serves almost 90% of the population within about a 30-minute drive. 
And, and this is more important in the North than it is in the South Premier, as you know, where they're struggling economically and, uh, you know, population under a bit of stress. And I still believe that, uh, you know, a regional, a regional hub allows people to do what you just said earlier, make sure they have the right services in that, in that region and that they can, you know, stay there because there's economic opportunity. One of the challenges with population growth, as you know, is it usually happens only in urban areas. The, the vast bulk of it is mainly in urban areas. So if we had places like Camelton and Dalhousie and Miramichi, you know, growing, maybe not as fast as the province, but at least growing at a pace, that would mean you could replace your labor force, you could create more economic opportunity. And the one thing that we know from PEI is that population growth leads to economic growth in a serious way. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'm glad to hear that that there's some there's some form of regional hub thinking in your in your plan. I, I'm really uh, I'm encouraged by that, and I I encourage you to continue on on that track. Uh, uh, just one other thing, though, that that you mentioned it before. I think we want to bring it up again. Is is the fact that New Brunswick's one of New Brunswick's really unique attributes is its commitment to bilingualism. It's the only bilingual province in the country. There have been, you know, a lot of uh, jobs created as a result of being bilingual, especially in the, in the large finance, insurance, and business uh, services clusters that generate, I, I think these are David's numbers, 1.8 billion in intra and in intra and in international export revenue. Uh, this was 2018, and and thousands of jobs. I know this is, you mentioned it early. It, it's challenging because there is some resistance in some quarters, but. I really like what you said about the education side. I think that this is critical. Like I grew up in Quebec as an example, as an Anglophone. I didn't come out of my English school bilingual. I always thought that that was a big problem and should have been fixed. I'm glad that you're going to tackle that issue. But beyond that, what, what else can be done to address the concerns about bilingualism in the province, especially in terms of, you know, people always bring up the cost of bilingualism. What, 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 uh, what can you be done to uh, address those issues, Premier? I, I think that um, I think what it turns—it's always been a, a fairness issue that that kind of um, magnifies itself in a time when the economy is bad, and we're just kind of ticking along, and the biggest job is a government job, so we always see it boil up at that time, and it boils up for a legitimate reason because there, and 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 again, it, because of. We aren't getting better at it. The, the The education system has basically been stagnated at about a sixty five percent coming out unilingual um, forever. So, so you you say, well, how do we ever expect to become a fully bilingual province where it doesn't matter if we never fix the education system? And and of course, we moved the French immersion grade one to grade three, grade three to grade one. And but but yet, even in French immersion, which has about thirty five percent of your um, overall students, we have a really steep streaming issue. And, and so, so we have an education system, which we very much are focusing on. I think we'll, we'll do a lot and focused on a conversational graduation requirement for both official languages. So what I think we have, we're, we're looking um, is kind of from a academic style to a, a social style of learning a second language. So you actually can communicate to your neighbors throughout the province in both official languages. When we talk about the, um, the, the aspects of it being a economic generator, it is. I believe that. 
uh, it is a, it's a strength that we offer that, that we are the only province that really offer it to, a, to an official degree. But the more we offer it throughout our province in regions like, like say, St. John, which wouldn't be noted as the, the bilingual city necessarily, like, like the Moncton, um, it'll be, the better it will be for that city as well. So I think that, that what I say is that, is there a bridge in, the, in this process with, like, how do, we, how do we use technology to bridge the gap as we're going forward so people don't feel disadvantaged? I'm trying to find a window here. Um, I, I guess I use the same argument on the energy thing about a transition from, from where we are to, to, to clean energy, um, which is even more magnified that concern right today with what's going on in, in Ukraine. Um, but, but it's the same way here. How do we, how do we take the barriers away from anyone want to come here to work? Anyone graduating today that wants to work that don't feel they're disadvantaged in the province they work and live and love or feel they have to leave for any reason. And so the end game's clear. It's a transition of how do we get everyone feeling part of the solution and not feel disadvantaged. And that's the, that's the, the piece that creates some angst, but it would solve, uh, if technology plays a role here for a period of time, it would solve the angst thing. And it would allow people to say, okay, I, I'm, I'm gonna learn, or I, I see even Quebec right now, they're bringing in immigrants uh, and they've said, well, you've got six months to learn French. But you know, in our case, we could say, we need, we need people on a per capita basis as much as Quebec does. We need to find ways that everyone can come to New Brunswick and not have restrictions that prevent that. If they're qualified, they need to come. And if they need to be bilingual, they need to learn. But we, we, we don't have the, the pick and choose option like we'd like to have because people just aren't available. So we always like to end up by asking our guests how optimistic they are about the future. So, you know, in your role as premier of the province, I'm sure you're optimistic. But can you can you talk about the basis of your optimism for the future of the province of New Brunswick? Yeah, well, I guess, yes, it goes without saying I, I, I've always been optimistic about the province because I saw so many areas that we could we could focus on meaningful issues that affect citizens around the province and, and make a difference. Um, but but in, in the last couple of years, the pandemic, we, we were, it's almost like we received a COVID bounce. It caused people to look in, look within and see what a great province we have. I mean, now it's magnified, but what we see in, in Ukraine and, 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 and Russia, and we're thinking, oh my, what's that about? I mean, this protest in Ottawa was, it's concerning because there's a, frac a faction of society that are taking some very extreme views. Um, and I don't think that was all the protesters by, by any stretch, but it was certainly some that are taking advantage of any protest. But as a province, I've always felt it was, it, it wasn't, it was a belief in one's self-worth and not, oh, we can't do that in New Brunswick, but oh, yes, we can. And the, co the pandemic really caused us to be a team to focus on, yes, we can. And we saw that with uh, in the lab aspect. We saw it everywhere in the province. And so, and it saw us also people following rules, even though they didn't like it, they didn't want to do it. But, you know, for the most part, we had good adherence. So then when you see that and you come out of COVID and we had kind of some great national exposure during that, and then you see people looking at us for the first time, and starting to call and buy houses virtually. I mean, whoever did that in New Brunswick before? And and people investing. You know, I have a little chart here, and you may hear me talk about it before. I'm kind of 
got papers strewn here, but it was about pu public and private sector investment. And and when we started, it was uh, we were almost matched public and private sector investment. And right now, the the private sector investment is about thirty percent higher than public sector investment. Um, and we see that growth. And 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 you know, I I'm going to use a, 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 is breaking a mold. Like politically, there's always this thing like I gotta. I have to spend money here, I have to spend money there, I have to spend money here. And, and then rather than kind of analyze, okay, what is the need? What is the, 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 the case? And I'm gonna use, I had a company that I spoke to about a, 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 a year ago or so, and they, they said the COVID, they said, we're just, we're just going great. We've never, business has never been stronger. And, uh, and they told me all about how well they were doing and they'd had private sector investment to get them going and, and the government weren't involved. And they said, you know, we came to you for a loan a year ago. You turned us down. And I said, well, it doesn't look like it hurt you much, did it? Because <laughs> <laughs> he talked so much about how great they were doing right before. So the point was, it wasn't a matter that they needed the loan. It was a matter that government would always give them a loan. So why not go after free money or cheap money? And that is the difference. So ONB, you know, we, I said we wouldn't change the name, but we'd beef up the criteria. We did the same thing through COVID. If you needed money, we were there to help you. We spent what, three, four hundred million. We spent the two point three billion the, the feds gave us. It all went out. We, we didn't do anything with it. The, the it just went out as prescribed. You know the surplus we had. Um, it came from the, this year. We had which shows the activity in New Brunswick. Typically, we get about seventy million or so on an HST refund from the federal government after we pay our HST and our portion comes back. It's a year lag. So the 2020 rebate of, it, of our provincial HST was four times larger than any other year. It went from 70 million to 292 million. We've never had that sort of a payment. And, and so it's like people were buying in New Brunswick and the economy was seeing it and feeling it. And our goal was to stay running, keep people running. If, if you were looking for COVID money because it was there, well, you probably kept on looking. But if you were looking for COVID money because you needed it, we were there to, to do something. So there was a difference in philosophy. And, and I just believe we're coming out stronger and better than we ever have been for a long, long time. Well, Premier, uh, thank you very much for joining the podcast. The very interesting conversation. Obviously, you're bringing a new, a new way of doing government, and uh, and in fact, you know, my observation uh, is that the premiers that we currently have in this region are of a slightly different mold than the than the past, and they're doing things differently, and it's it and it's for everybody's good, frankly. And uh, uh, I want to congratulate you on your success and wish you well in the future. Thank you both. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week. This episode of Insights was brought to you by MNP Digital, a firm that guides, protects, and empowers organizations along their digital journey. See how at mnpdigital.ca.